Section 11 of The White Wolf and Other Fireside Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The White Wolf and Other Fireside Tales by Sir Arthur Thomas Quiller Couch. Section 11. The Cellars of Rueda. Part 1. I Enter the Cellars. It happened on a broiling afternoon in July 1812, and midway in a fortnight of exquisite weather, during which Wellington and Marmont faced each other across the Douro, before opening the beautiful series of evolutions, or rather of circumvolutions, which ended suddenly on the 22nd, and locked the two armies in the prettiest pitched battle I have lived to see. For the moment neither general desired a battle. Marmont, thrust back from Salamanca, had found a strong position where he could safely wait for reinforcements, and had indeed already collected near upon 40,000 of all arms, when, on the 8th, Bonny marched into camp from Asturias with another 6,000 infantry. He had sent, too, to borrow some divisions from Caffarelli's army of the north, but these he expected in vain, for Bonnet's withdrawal from Asturias had laid bare the whole line of French communication, and so frightened Caffarelli for the safety of his own district that he at once recalled the 12,000 men he was moving down to the Douro, and in the end sent but a handful of cavalry, and that grudgingly. All this I had the honour to predict to Lord Wellington, just twelve hours before Bonnet's arrival on the scene. I staked my reputation that Caffarelli, on whom I had been watching and waiting for a month past, would not move, and Lord Wellington, on the spot, granted me the few days' rest I deserved, not so much in joy of the news, which nevertheless was gratifying, as because for the moment he had no work for me. The knot was tied. He could not attack except at great disadvantage, for the fords were deep, and Marmont held the one bridge at Tortesillas. His business was to hold on, covering Salamanca and the road back to Portugal, and await Marmont's first move. The French front stretched as a cord across an arc of the river, which here takes a long sweep to the south, and the British faced it around this arc, with their left, centre and right, upon three tributary streams, the Guerenya, Tarancos and Zapardiel, over which last, and just before it joins the Douro, towers the rock of Rueda, crowned with a ruinated castle. Upon this rock, for my quarters lay in face of it, on the opposite bank of the stream, I had been gazing for the best part of an idle afternoon. I was comfortable, my cigaritos lay within reach, my tent gave shade enough, and through the flapway I found myself watching a mighty pretty comedy, with the rock of Rueda for its back scene. A more satisfactory one I could not have wished, and I have something of a connoisseur's eye. To be sure, the triangular flapway narrowed the picture, and although the upstanding rock and castle fell admirably within the frame, it cut off an animated scene on the left, where their distant shouts and laughter told me that French and British were bathing together in the river below, and rallying each other on the battles yet to be fought. For during these weeks, and indeed through the operations which followed up to the moment of fighting, the armies behaved less like foes than like two teams before a cricket match, or two wrestlers who shake hands and afterwards grin amicably as they move in circles, seeking for a hitch. As I lay, however, the bathing place could only be brought into view by craning my neck beyond the tent door, and my posture was too well chosen to be shifted. 
Moreover, I had a more singular example of these amenities in face of me on the rock of Rueda itself. The cliff standing out against the sun's glare like ivory beneath the blue and quivering with heat was flecked here and there with small lilac shadows, and these shadows marked the entrances of the caves with which Rueda was honeycombed. I had once or twice resolved to visit these caves, for I had heard much of their renown, and even, although this I disbelieved, that they contained wine enough to intoxicate all the troops in the peninsula. Wine in abundance they certainly contained, and all the afternoon men singly and in clusters had been swarming in and out of these entrances, like flies about a honeypot. For whatever might be happening on the Travancos, under Lord Wellington's eye, here at Rueda, on the extreme right, discipline for a while had disappeared, and presumably the like was true of Marmont's extreme left, holding the bridge of Tortesillas for from the bridge a short roadway leads to Rueda, and among the figures moving about the rock, diminished by distance though they were, I counted quite a respectable proportion of Frenchmen. No one who loves his calling ever quite forgets it, and though no one could well have appeared, or indeed felt, lazier, I was really giving my eye practice in discriminating on this anthill the drunk from the sober, and even the moderately drunk from the incapable. There could be no doubt at any rate concerning one little Frenchman whom two tall British grenadiers were guiding down the cliff towards the road, and against my will I had to drop my cigarette and laugh aloud, for the two guides were themselves unsteady, yet as desperately intent upon the job as though they handled a chest of treasure. Now they would prop him up and run him over a few yards of easy ground, and on, at a sharp descent, one would clamber down ahead and catch the burden his comrade lowered by the collar with a subsidiary grip upon belt or pantaloons. But to the Frenchman all smooth and rugged came alike, his legs sprawled impartially, and once, having floundered on top of the leading Samaritan with a shock which rolled the pair to the very edge of a precipice, he recovered himself and sat up in an attitude which, at half a mile's distance, was eloquent of tipsy reproach. In short, when the procession had filed past the edge of my tent flap, I crawled out to watch, and then it occurred to me, as worth a lazy man's while, to cross the Thapadil by the pontoon bridge below and head these comedians off upon the high road. They promised to repay a closer view. So I did, gained the road, and, seating myself beside it, hailed them as they came. My friend, said I, to the leading grenadier, you are taking a deal of trouble with your prisoner. The grenadier stared at his comrade, and his comrade at him. As if by signal, they mopped their brows with their coat sleeves. The Frenchman sat down on the road without more ado. Prisoner? mumbled the first grenadier. Aye, said I. Who is he? He doesn't look like a general of brigade. Devil take me if I know. Who will he be, Bill? Bill stared at the Frenchman blankly, and rooted him out of the dust with his toe. I wonder now. Picked him up somewheres. Get up, you little pig, and carry your liquor like a gentleman. It was Mike introduced him. I did not, said Mike. Very well, then, you did not. I must have come by him some other way. It was yourself tripped over him in the cellar, up yander. He broke off and eyed me, meditating a sudden thought. It seems mighty queer, that. Speaking of a cellar as up yander, now a cellar by rights should be in the ground, under your foot. And so it is, argued Bill. Slap in the bowels of it. Ah, be quiet with your bowels. As I was saying, sir, Bill tipped over the little fellow and the next I knew he was crying to be tucked home to camp, and Bill swearing to do it if it cost him his stripes. And that is where I come into this fatigue job. 
for the man's no friend of mine, and will not be looking for it, I hope. Did I so? Bill exclaimed, regarding himself suddenly from outside, as it were, and not without admiration. Did I promise that? Well, then, he fixed a sternly disapproving stare on the Frenchman. The Lord knows what possessed me. But to the bridge edge you go, if I fight the whole of Clausel's division single-handed. Take his feet, Mike. I'm a man of my word. Hip, ready, is it? Forward. For a minute or so, as they staggered down the road, I stared after them, and then upon an impulse mounted the track by which they had descended. It was easy enough, for they had never come down alive, but the sun's rays smote hotly off the face of the rock, and at one point I narrowly missed being brained by a stone dislodged by some drunkard above me. Already, however, the stream of tipplers had begun to set back towards the camp, and my main difficulty was to steer against it, avoiding disputes as to the rule of the road. I had no intention of climbing to the castle. My whim was, and herein again I set my training a test, to walk straight to the particular opening from which, across the Thapardville, I had seen my comedians emerge. I found it, not without difficulty, a broad archway of rock, so low that a man of ordinary stature must stoop to pass beneath it, with, for threshold, a sill of dry, fine earth, which sloped up to a ridge immediately beneath the archway, and on the inner side dipped down into darkness so abruptly that, as I mounted on the outer side, I found myself staring, at a distance of two yards or less, into the face of an old man, seated within the cave, out of which his head and shoulders arose into view as if by magic. Ah, said he calmly, good evening, signor. You will find good entertainment within. He pointed past him into absolute night, or so it seemed to my dazzled eyes. He spoke in Spanish, which is my native tongue, although not my ancestral one, and as I crouched past the archway, I found time to speculate on his business in this cavern, for clearly he had not come hither to drink, and as clearly he had nothing to do with either army. At first glance I took him for a priest, but his bands, if he wore them, were hidden beneath a dark poncho, fitting tightly about his throat, and his bald head baffled any search for a tonsure. Although a small book lay open on his lap, I had interrupted no reading, for when I came upon him, his spectacles were perched high over his brows, and gleamed upon me like a duplicate pair of eyes. He was patently sober, too, which perhaps came as the greatest shock of all to me, after meeting so many on my path who were patently the reverse. I answered his salutation. But you will pardon me, excellent sir, for saying that you perhaps mistake the entertainment I seek. We gentlemen of Spain are temperate livers, and I will confess that curiosity alone has brought me, or, say rather, the fame of your wonderful cellars of Rueda. I put it thus, thinking he might perhaps be some official of the caves, or of the castle above. But he let the shot pass. His lean hands from the first had been fumbling with his poncho, to throw back the folds of it in courtesy to a stranger. But this seemed no easy matter, and at a sign from me he desisted. I can promise you, he answered, nothing more amusing than the group with which you paused to converse just now by the road. Eh? You saw me? I was watching from the path outside, for I too can enjoy a timely laugh. No one, I am bound to say, would have guessed it. With his long scrag neck and great moons of spectacles, which he had now drawn down, the better to study me, he suggested an absurd combination of the vulture and the owl. Dios, 
You have good eyes, then. For long distances. But they cannot see Salamanca. His gaze wandered for a moment to the entrance beyond which, far below and away, a sunny landscape twinkled, and he sighed. But before I could read any meaning in the words or the sigh, his spectacles were turned upon me again. You are Spanish? he asked abruptly. Of Castile, for that matter. Though not, I may own, to you, of pure descent. I come from Aranjuez, where a Scottish ancestor, whose name I bear, settled and married soon after the War of Succession. A Scot. He leaned forward, and his hands, which had been resting on his lap, clutched the book nervously. Of the Highlands? I nodded, wondering at his agitation. Even so, senor. They say that all Scotsmen in Spain know one another. Tell me, my son. He was a priest then, after all. Tell me, for the love of God, if you know where to find a certain Manuel MacNeill, who I hear is a famous scout. That, reverend father, is not always easy, as the French would tell you. But for me here, it happens to be very easy indeed, seeing that I am the unworthy sinner you condescend to compliment. You? He drew back, incredulous. You? He repeated, thrusting the book into his pocket and groping on the rocky soil beside him. The finger of God, then, is in this. What have I done with my candle? Ah, here it is. Oblige me by holding it. So, while I strike a light. I heard the rattle of a tinderbox. They sell these candles. Here he caught a spark and blew. They sell these candles at the castle above. The quality is indifferent, and the price excessive. But I wander at night and pick up those which the soldiers drop. An astonishing number, I can assure you. See it is lit. He stretched out a hand and took the candle from me. Be careful of your footsteps, for the floor is rough. But pardon me, before I follow, I have a right to know upon what business. He turned and peered at me, holding the candle high. You are suspicious, he said, almost querulously. It goes with my trade. I take you to one who will be joyful to see you. Will that suffice, my son? Your description, reverend father, would include many persons, from the Duke of Ragusa downwards, whom, nevertheless, I have no desire to meet. Well, I will tell you, though I was planning it for a happy surprise. This person is a kinsman of yours, a Captain Alan MacNeill. I stepped back a pace and eyed him. Then, said I, your story will certainly not suffice, for I know it to be impossible. It was only last April that I took leave of Captain Alan MacNeill on the road to Bayonne and close to the frontier. He was then a prisoner under escort with a letter from Marmont ordering the governor of Bayonne to clap him in irons and forward him to Paris, where, the marshal hinted, no harm would be done by shooting him. Then he must have escaped. Pardon me, that again is impossible, for I should add that he was under some kind of parole. A prisoner under escort in irons condemned or at least intended to be shot, and all the while under parole? My friend, that must surely have been a strange kind of parole. It was, and saving your reverence, a cursed, dirty kind. But it sufficed for my kinsman, as I know to my cost, for with the help of the partidas, I rescued him, close to the frontier, and he, like the fool, or like the noble gentleman he was, declined his salvation, released the escort, which we had overpowered, shook hands with us, and rode forward to his death. A brave story. You would say so, did you know the whole of it. There is no man alive whose hand I could grasp as proudly as I grasped his at the last, and no other, alive or dead, 
of whom I could say with the same conviction that he made me at once think worse of myself and better of human nature. He seems then to have a mania for improving his fellow men. For, said my guide, still pausing with a candle aloft and twinkling on his spectacles, I assure you he has been trying to make a Lutheran of me. Wholly incredulous as I was, this took me fairly between wind and water. Did he, I stammered, did he happen to mention the scarlet woman? Several times, though in justice to his delicacy, I must say it only in his delirium. His delirium? He has been ill, almost desperately ill. A case of sunstroke, I believe. Do I understand that you believe sufficiently to follow me? I cannot say that I believe, yet, if it be not Captain Allen McNeil, and if for some purpose which, to be frank with you, I cannot guess, I am being walked into a trap, you may take credit to yourself that it has been well, nay, excellently invented. I pay you that compliment beforehand, and for my kinsman's sake, or for the sake of his memory, I accept the risk. There is no risk, answered the Reverend Father, at once leading the way. None, that is to say, with me to guide you. There is risk, then, in some degree? We skirt a labyrinth, he answered quietly. You will have observed, of course, that no one has passed us, or disturbed our talk. To be sure, the archway under which you found me is one of the false entrances, as they are called, of Rueda cellars. There are a dozen between this and the summit, and perhaps half a dozen below, which give easy access to the wine vaults, and in any of which a crowd of goers and comers would have incommoded us. For the soldiers would seem, and very wisely I must allow, to follow a chart and confine themselves to the easier outskirts of these caves, wisely because the few cellars they visit contain Val de Peñas, enough to keep two armies drunk, until either Wellington enters Madrid or Marmont recaptures Salamanca. But they are not adventurous, and the few who dare, though no doubt they penetrate to better wine, are not in the end to be envied. Now this passage of ours is popularly, but quite erroneously, supposed to lead nowhere and is therefore by consent avoided. Excuse me, said I, but it was precisely by this exit that I saw emerge three men as honestly drunk as any three I have met in my life. For the moment he seemed to pay no heed, but stooped and held the candle low before his feet. The path, you perceive, here shelves downwards. By following it, we should find ourselves, after ten minutes or so, at the end of a cul-de-sac. But see this narrow ledge to the right. Pay particular heed to your footsteps here, I pray you. It curves to the right, broadening ever so little before it disappears around the corner. Yet here lies the true path, and you shall presently own it an excellent one. He sprang forward like a goat, and turning, again held the candle low, that I might plant my feet wisely. Sure enough, just around the corner, the ledge widened at once, and we passed into a new gallery. Ah, you are talking of those three drunkards, well, they must have emerged by following this very path. Impossible. Excuse me, but for a scout whose fame is acknowledged, you seem fond of a word which Bonaparte, we are told, has banished from the dictionaries. Ask yourself now. They were assuredly drunk, and your own eyes have assured you there is no wine between us and daylight. My son, I have inhabited Troeda long enough to acquire a faith in miracles, even had I brought none with me. Along this ledge our three drunkards strolled like children out of the very womb of earth. 
they will never know what they escaped. Should the knowledge ever come to them, it ought to turn their hair grey then and there. Children and drunkards, said I. You know the byword? And might believe it, but for much evidence on the other side. But I was following another thought, and for the moment did not hear him closely. I suppose, then, the owners guard the main entrances, but leave such as this, for instance, to be defended by their own difficulty. Why should any be guarded? he asked, pausing to untie a second candle from the bunch he had suspended from his belt. Eh? Surely to leave all this wine exposed in a world of thieves. The reverend father smiled as he lit the new candle from the stump of his old one. No doubt the wine-growers did not contemplate a visit from two armies, and such very thirsty ones. The peasants hereabouts are abstemious, and the few thieves count for no more than flies. For the rest, he was stooping again, with his candle all but level with the ledge, and a few inches wide of it. Held so, it cast a feeble ray into the black void below us, and down there, thirty feet down perhaps, as his talk broke in two, like a snapped guitar string, my eyes caught a blur of scarlet. For God's sake, I cried, hold the light steady. To what purpose? he asked grimly. That is one whom Providence did not lead out to light. See, he is broken to pieces. You can tell from the way he lies, and dead too. My son, the caves of Rueda protect themselves. He shuffled to the end of the ledge, and there, at the entrance of a dark gallery, so low that her heads almost knocked against the rock roof, he halted again, and leaned his ear against the wall on the right. Sometimes, when the wall is thin, I have heard them crying and beating on it with their fists. I shivered. The reader knows me by this time for a man of fair courage, but the bravest man on earth may be caught off his own ground, and I do not mind confessing that here was a situation for which a stout parentage and a pretty severe training had somehow failed to provide. In short, as my guide pushed forward, I followed in knock-kneed terror. I wanted to run. I told myself that if this indeed were a trap, and he should turn and rush upon me, I was as a child at his mercy, and he might do worse. He might blow out the light and disappear. As the gallery narrowed and at the same time contracted in height, so that at length we were crawling on hands and knees, this insanity grew. Two or three times I felt for my knife, with an impulse to drive it through his back, seize the candles, and escape. Nor at this moment can I say what restrained me. At length, and after crawling for at least two hundred yards, without any warning, he stood erect, and this was the worst moment of all, for as he did so the light vanished, or so nearly as to leave but the feeblest glimmer. The reason being, and I discovered it with a sob, that he stood in an ample vaulted chamber, while I was yet beneath the roof of the tunnel. The first thing I saw on emerging beside him was the belly of a great wine-tun, curving out above my head, its recurve hidden, lost somewhere in upper darkness, and the first thing I heard was the whip of a bat's wing by the candle. My guide beat it off. Better take a candle and light it for mine. These creatures breed here in thousands. Hear them now, above us. But what is that other sound? I asked and together we moved towards it. Three enormous tons stood in the chamber, and we halted by the base of the farthest, where, with a spilt pail beside him, lay a British sergeant of the 36th Regiment, tranquilly snoring. 
that and no other was the sound, and a blesseder I never heard. I could have kicked the fellow awake for the mere pleasure of shaking hands with him. My guide moved on. But we're not going to leave him here. Oh, as for that, his sleep is good for hours to come. If you choose, we can pick him up on our return. So we left him, and now I went forward with a heart strangely comforted, although on leaving the great cellar I knew myself hopelessly lost. Hitherto I might have turned, and, fortune abiding, have found daylight. But beyond the cellar the galleries ramified by the score, and we walked so rapidly, and chose between them with such apparent lack of method that I lost count. My one consolation was the memory of a burly figure in scarlet supine beneath a wine-tun. I was thinking of him when, at the end of a passage, to me indistinguishable from any of the dozen or so we had already followed, my guide put out a hand, and, drawing aside a goatskin curtain, revealed a small chamber with a lamp hanging from the roof, and under the lamp a bed of straw, and upon the bed an emaciated man, propped and holding a book. His eyes were on the entrance, for he had heard our footsteps, and almost we broke into one cry of joy. It was indeed my kinsman, Captain McNeill. End of Part 1